Is it time for a mind shift? If you don't know what that means, then join your host, Dr. Clint Haycock, a former evangelical Christian pastor and Bible college teacher of over 20 years, along the journey of deconstruction and reconstruction of faith, life, religion, and spirituality. I'm happy to welcome back returning guest, Dr. Warren Throckmorton, to the show. Thanks for dropping in. Oh, my pleasure. Yes. Yeah, it's been great to catch up. I'm thinking about the last time we talked was last year, 2020. We had a really interesting discussion about the Christian nationalist historian, quote unquote, David Barton. Mm -hmm. And that was really interesting. Has there been any updates on the David Barton front since we talked last time? He remains active. Uh, although um, under under the radar, I think uh, he tries to maintain a low profile, mm. but uh, uh, he does uh, continue to recruit politicians and uh, try to get Christian nationalists uh, into uh, office. Uh, he's uh, backing a, a politician for Senate in. Uh, Ohio, Josh Mandel, and uh, the Republican primary there. And uh, this is a, a, actually a, Mandel's a longtime Barton uh, supporter. I mean, they support each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he, uh, you know, continues to, uh, pers- you know, per- he's persistent. If anything, uh, David Barton is persistent. I have That's to give true. him that. He's very good. He's very active in, in a lot of different spheres and levels, isn't he? His name just sort of pops up. In fact, um, I noticed him the other day because on the 4th of July, I'm sure you saw that in, in the na- newspapers nationwide, Steve Green of Hobby Lobby took out an advert. Did you see that? It was a full page ad. I guess he does every year. He does one. And then it said at the bottom that it was essentially he had a help from wall builders to put this mm-hmm. advertisement together. It was all sure. about... America is a Christian nation, one nation under right. God. And I thought, aha, there's David Barton. He's popping up again <laughs> with Hobby Lobby now. That's right. Well, he, there, that's a long-standing relationship too. Uh, yes. Dave, David has made his, uh, I mean, he's been shrewd about it. He has recruited uh, and sought after uh, wealthy evangelicals. And uh, it's been mutual. They've sought him out as well because mm-hmm. they have common cause uh, to advance a privileging of Christianity over other religions. They'll, they'll never admit that. They'll never say that that's what they're that's their about, but because um, they, they, uh, they know that sounds bad, but, and it is, I mean, that's not our system, but they, mm-hmm. uh, they, they secretly, or they, I mean, not so secretly and yeah, amongst themselves, they believe that that is our system, that we are a Christian nation in the United States and that, uh, that is uh, the way it was supposed to be. That's the way it was. And that's the way it needs to be again. It should be again. Well, I wanted to catch up on David Barton really quick, because I know that that's one of your areas of expertise, having written a book about his Jefferson lies and, and helping to get it pulled off the shelves and all that. But if people mm-hmm. hadn't listened to that, they can go back and track that episode down. But I contacted you because the Mark Driscoll Mars Hill thing is kind of blown up at the moment. Christianity Today, of course, as we know, as we're doing this recording, they've, uh, they've released at least five, maybe six episodes. They're doing an, an in-depth discussion on the implosion of Mars Hill, Seattle. Have you been listening to that podcast, by the way? I have. Uh, I, I would say if you are an evangelical or you uh, know one or you're interested in them as a group, uh, this is must-listen mm-hmm. uh, media that... Uh, that that series i'm i'm assigning it in one of my classes uh, really? this fall yes i in the industrial organizational class uh as a part of uh organizational psychology i think it uh, particularly since i teach at a christian college i think it's a rare effort that evangelicals are making to really look at themselves to look at evangelical figures who who really messed up hmm. and to do it in a critical way 
to do it uh, in a way to learn something, to try to you know get something out of it. And I I, I think it's uh, it, nothing's perfect, of course. I mean, sure. we can pick it apart. We can pick it apart. I mean, anybody can do that. Uh, and and there may be some legitimate things that can be said along those lines. But the, just the idea that a long form journalistic effort exists to I mean, it's, it's been, you know, it's been seven years. Sure. Uh, and so, you know, it's, it should have happened sooner, really. But still, that it's happening at all is yeah, it's only a good thing, really a good thing to look at what happened in that movement. And can you imagine if all of these uh, failures in evangelicalism got that kind of treatment? I mean, uh, we'd be... Uh, as a group, evangelicals would make a lot fewer errors, it seems like. You know, we'd be too busy analyzing yeah. them. A little bit of accountability would be good, yeah. Yeah. Which is obviously, I think. yeah, one of the things that was sorely lacking at Mars Hill and whatever that will, I'm sure we'll get into all that. But yeah, one thing that strikes me, as you say, the Christianity today, I've listened to the first five anyway. I'm, I'm sure there are more episodes coming out. But one of the things that struck me is, yes, as you say, it is coming from an evangelical point of view. So you have to keep that in mind. And the other thing that I was hoping we could get into at some point in this episode is they haven't said, at least not yet, they've not used the word cult or sort of cult psychology, cult tactics. But the more I listen to these episodes, the more I'm struck by the parallels between what happened at Mars Hill and even what's happening now at Mark Driscoll's church in Scottsdale, Arizona. There's some very classic sort of cult parallels. So I'm sure we can get into that as well. But I'm interested to find out, when did you start getting involved in the Mars Hill Seattle saga? It uh, was relatively late uh, in their history. I had not heard, I mean, I had heard the name uh, Mark Driscoll Mm -hmm. before I started writing about it. But I, I'm not much of a follower of people or anything, so I didn't know much about him. Uh, I heard something about his involvement at uh, John MacArthur's church uh, he, at a conference that MacArthur called Strange Fire. And the only reason I heard about that was because uh, I'd, I'd read on uh, social media, this is now back in 2013, that MacArthur was basically saying charismatics were all you know, doomed damn to hell. Uh, at least that's how it was presented wow. in social media. And uh, I, I, while I'm not a charismatic or and am not uh, sympathetic exactly to that perspective, I, I, I thought that was a little extreme. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I don't uh, follow that kind of Christianity either to mm-hmm. just condemn everybody. And, uh, I, and so then I heard Driscoll went there and, you know, passed out his books and kind of did a little stunt. And I thought it was kind of kind of uh, funny in a way. Mm. Uh, and then I then he went on uh, a Janet Mefford show, yes. and to, to talk about his book. And Janet Mefford is very conservative, much more conservative than me on on things. And I thought maybe she was a little. I thought maybe she was wrong at first about his plagiarism. About his plagiarism. Yes. And so I I thought well, you know, Janet and I. We know we've known each other for a long time. We don't mm-hmm. agree on much, but I thought, well, I'm going to see if she's right about this. And so I looked into it, and, and lo and behold, I had to admit that she probably was right. And so I wrote a piece about it, and I thought, uh, even though I, you know, I'm, I'm, we're just not on the same wavelength, I thought, well, she's getting a raw deal here, and you really uh, he, did, yeah. You know, he's taking advantage of the situation because she's a woman and. You know, she's she's a, a strong woman. She mm-hmm. really is. I mean, she's uh, she's not going to back down from anybody. And uh, she didn't back down from him. And I admire that about her. I admired that then. So I started writing about the, the thing. And, and lo and behold, I found all kinds of what I called then citation errors. I was trying not to get sued. <laughs> you were being generous, huh? I, I, well, I didn't want to get sued. I wouldn't be You were saying generous, straight out generous. plagiarism. Yeah. I, so in other I, words, I, you were saying, yeah, he, he had uh, quoted from different authors without giving credit for yeah. the citation. 
Yeah, in my academic work, that's plagiarism. I mean, it that's is what plagiarism. we call it. Yep. And and that's you know what I think the history has now told us. His publishers thought of it because they ended up going back and correcting a lot of that stuff mm-hmm. uh, after I pointed it out. But I went through all his books, and it kind of became a you know a little scavenger hunt. Uh, <laughs> find the find the citation. Find well, find well f- and find the place where it wasn't cited, and then find where it actually came from. And yeah. so I found it in several of his books and published lots of articles. And so that's that's uh, how I got started. This was uh, end of 2013, beginning of 2014. And then when I started doing that, people who used to work at Mars Hill and people who worked at Mars Hill at the time started sending me documents and anonymously telling me things about Mars Hill that were shocking. Mm. And I I turned my attention to exposing those things. And, they're, they're, you know, it wasn't, when I say exposing those things, it wasn't Driscoll stubbed his toe and said a bad word in the cloakroom. And I said, and I said, oh, you know, naughty, naughty Driscoll. Yeah, finger wagging. Yeah, th- these are things that were going on in public that nobody would talk about because they were afraid of them. And yeah, there so, was a lot of intimidation, wasn't there? A lot of basically bullying, and it created yeah. a very toxic culture from what I understand. Yes, you know, for example, he, uh, th- this is a story that, you know, never got out because he told people not to talk about it. Uh, he was at a, a church, one of the church campuses of Mars Hill had a fundraising evening. Mm-hmm. It was a service, and they were trying to raise money for the for the campus. Uh, I don't know if it was to buy the building or renovate the building or something like that. And they didn't make their goal. They not not enough money came in that night, mm-hmm. and everybody had worked really hard, but it just it didn't happen, you know. And uh, Driscoll got up to pray, and he prayed something like, "Lord." Uh, forgive us, you know, for having such a terrible church and having no faith. And he basically just lambasted the audience in the the guise of the prayer. prayer. Right. Yeah. I mean, all these people felt like failures and it was apparently was, I can't even do justice to Mm. how bad it was. I don't know if he swore exactly in the prayer, but it was, he was, he was blasting them Mm -hmm. and telling them how bad they were. And, uh, you know, it's something like, forgive us for wasting this opportunity right. for ministry or some such thing as that. Right. Th- some of these people who had given, like, lots of money. Quite a know, bit, yeah. And they didn't have. And, and that's right. the it thing. It was a sacrificial thing, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And that always just really got to me. It kept me in this story was how a guy who was making a half a million dollars mm-hmm. to... Uh, you know, to preach a time or two a week, he would stand up and blast people who were making lots less and given lots more of their income so he could make half a million dollars. That just really bothers me. And so... There was a lot of that, yeah. You know, that that kind of stuff. See, this is what I mean by, like, exposing. Every, You know, there were lots of witnesses to that, but nobody talked about it because they were ashamed of it. They, and and they were made to feel shame if they told people, and that's the when you talk about, you know, cult and all that stuff, that's part of the mind control, that people who come out of the church, they're like, wait a minute, this happened in public. Why why should I feel that I can't talk about? It? Of course mm-hmm. I should be able to talk about it, but that's the kind of control that you you start to give up, when you enter and stay in groups like this. Yeah, when you're that deep into the system, well, some of the comments that Driscoll made over the years, just listening to that Christianity Today podcast, I'd never heard that quote. He was at a conference, I think, and he said something to the effect that there's a pile of bodies behind or dead bodies behind the Mars Hill bus. And by God's will, when we're done, there's going to be a mountain of dead bodies. You know, and it was all about you, you either get out of the way of the bus or you get on board or you're going to be one of those dead, you know, dead bodies. And that was, again, you know, shocking. And people said at the time, well, that's just Mark. I mean, that's the ruthless sort of vision for the church that we have to have. And now they're looking back in absolute shock. I mean, who talks that way as a, as a pastor of a church? 
I mean, when I was a pastor, I would have, I would have never stood up in front of the church and said, you know, there's a pile of dead bodies behind this, this thing, either get on board or get out of our way. And that's such a cutthroat attitude for a, a pastor to have. Yeah. He called it blessed subtraction. Mm -hmm. uh, again, it's, shows how far removed he was and and maybe is from the way that church life is done uh in main street you know i i go to a little church uh i don't know you know 100 people or so mm -hmm. on a good day we would never think of one person leaving as a good thing you know because you you don't have that many people to spare right a small church and he's like oh you know i can we can just throw them under the bus and it's it's a good thing we don't you know care about them all we care about is getting them on our page and in our vision and mm -hmm. by that he means my vision exactly yeah and of course if, if anyone disagreed with his particular vision they were gone as we saw many times he would fire elders uh, in fact, that might have been the same meeting where he just, he can't, he said, I've just fired two elders, you know, minutes ago right. sort of thing <laughs> before right. I got up here to speak and they're out of here. They didn't, they questioned my vision and they were gone. And like you said, the cult psychology of it, they, you know, there's many, many stories of people who were booted out of the church unceremoniously and then shunned. The church would come after them in, in several ways and people were instructed not to have anything to do with them. And of course he's doing that now which I'm sure we can get into at some point, but his church in Arizona is even worse if it, if there were possible, because he's in complete control. Now he has no accountability apparently. Well, I, you know, I, I was listening to the most recent episode there of uh, rise and fall of Mars Hill. And mm -hmm. I was um, reminded of the treatment that Paul Petrie and his wife uh, experienced after he was fired in 2007 and uh it, it just struck me again that how much like what's going on now that was you know we say it's it's worse now but uh i had to be reminded of that by listening to paul talk about uh that there was no real explanation his his wife was shunned she got no phone calls people were instructed not to talk to her and uh that kind of uh, shunning was, you know, to, here's a person who built their entire social existence around a group of people at a church. And this is indeed what evangelicals are, are kind of taught to do and what, you know, is socially acceptable to do. And then all of a sudden, you know, one day for really no reason, you find that nobody will talk to you. Uh, this is unconscionable and Shocking, yeah. that is what is going on what what people are reporting is going on at at the trinity church in scottsdale arizona mm -hmm. but it is um you know it, i'd even kind of fallen into well this is now worse well actually it's about what happened to the petries mm -hmm. yeah it's the same playbook isn't it that's the thing that struck me about it i've been doing a lot of research on driscoll because it's interesting in my case our paths nearly crossed <laughs> on multiple occasions. We have kind of some things in common, even though he wasn't born in Washington state, Mark Driscoll grew up not far from where I grew up in the South of Seattle area. He went mm. to high school at a local high school that I know very well. And he went to the same exact seminary that I did down in Portland and did the exact same degree that I did mm. at mm. the same seminary. He did an MA in exegetical theology just a few years before I started going there. So, you know, had I been a little bit sooner, I, I would have been his classmate at the seminary, you know, and he obviously went on to, to found Mars Hill in Seattle, which was my hometown. We went and visited the church a couple times and I was struck by that, that sort of franchise church model. That was the thing that struck me right off the bat. You know, these satellite churches that broadcasted his sermons every Sunday, you didn't have a local preacher. You had Mark Driscoll, on the big screen. And even then it struck me that this is like a, an empire building thing. This is a monument to his ego. Surely. I mean, who does that to have all these franchise churches? It's such a strange model, isn't it? Well, it, it did become about that. It became about his brand. 
Yeah, he uh, said, I am the brand at one point, allegedly. Right. Well, yeah, that's that's a story I've heard from multiple people who were in, in a meeting. Uh, the background of, of that is that the, some of the people in the in the branding team, there was a kind of a communications team that wanted to make Mars Hill about some of the music that they were doing. They were really had some great bands. Oh, yeah. Uh, uh, the music was quite good. And they wanted to make Mars Hill known for more than just preaching in church. And uh, Driscoll wasn't having it. And in that meeting where they, where that conversation was taking place, he said, basically, I am the brand. Mm. I'm in the pulpit preaching. That's the brand of this church, and that's all it's ever going to be. So, you know, and and what uh, the consequences of that was that uh, other pastors rarely spoke. Now, in the beginning, that wasn't true. In the beginning, other people did preach, and uh, he shared those duties. But he uh, later. Uh, wanted to preach all the sermons, didn't want anyone else to. In fact, uh, told uh, some of the the pastors that it would be like uh, uh, somebody dating his wife, uh, that uh, he's the pastor there. He's the preaching pastor. Nobody else gets to to do that. Share the limelight, huh? We are just taking a short break in this conversation with Dr. Warren Throckmorton. When we come back, we're going to get into this issue of Mark Driscoll, cult leader personality. Does he fit the profile? And then later on in the episode, we're going to look at some of the very specific things that I think the Christianity Today podcast has so far missed. When we did this recording, there were only five episodes out, but now it's up to seven. I've listened to all seven so far. And I think someone mentioned the word cult. It wasn't the host of the show. It was one of the guests who mentioned the word cult and potentially applied it to Mars Hill. So I'm going to be very interested to see if the Christianity Today podcast series does delve into that, as well as the current situation, which Dr. Throckmorton and I are going to talk about at the end of the show, what's happening currently in this Trinity Church that Mark Driscoll founded in Scottsdale, Arizona, that thing seems to resemble even more of a cult than what Mars Hill was doing. But before we get back into the chat with Dr. Throckmorton, I wanted to mention a real big thank you to the newest Patreon supporters of Mindshift Podcast. Thank you to Michael McKay, to Miles Shapiro, and Leilani Haywood, all of which are new Patreon supporters of the show. So thank you so much. One of the cool benefits you're going to get actually coming up very soon here, We've I've talked about this before, we are planning toward the end of the month a conversation with Frank Schaefer about his new book that's just about to drop. You can actually pre-order it on Amazon now. You can get it when it comes out. As soon as it drops, you'll have it. But we're going to have a discussion with Frank. There's about probably six or eight of us so far that have I've sent out advanced copies of the book that Frank sent me. And this is something that's only available to Patreon supporters of the show. There's still time to get on board if you want to be a part of this call. So that is a really cool thing coming up. Also, the next episode that's coming out here on Mindship Podcast, I've got a conversation coming up with Ryan Stoller, who has done a lot of writing on the Homeschoolers Anonymous blog, which is now an archived blog. He's got his own blog. He's been speaking out for years about the abuses within the Christian homeschooling environment, which is where he comes from himself. We had a fantastic discussion. So that's actually going to be the next actual episode that comes out after this one with Warren Throckmorton. And I think going back on this, I've been doing a lot of research on the Mark Driscoll Christianity Today podcast series, The Mars Hill Saga. I think I might do a complete standalone episode on this, just kind of talking about my perspectives, what I think the Christianity Today podcast is missing and what they're doing right. I'm not going to say it's all wrong. It's certainly, as I mentioned before, it is coming from an evangelical perspective. And so, and I think they're missing out on the cult psychology aspect of it as well. And in fact, one of the things that I wish we'd have gotten into in this discussion with Dr. Throckmorton is something that Kristen Cobes Dumay talks about in her book, Jesus and John Wayne. And she mentions Driscoll specifically as a sort of a case study of how this toxic, masculine, evangelical, biblical patriarchy model, this muscular Christianity and the abuse of leadership style that conditions so many evangelicals. I mean, Driscoll's not the only one. There's a direct through line between what Mark Driscoll was doing at Mars Hill and many other celebrity-type pastors 
and Donald Trump, the evangelical support for Donald Trump. So that's something I'm going to look into in my episode that I'm working on putting together right now, uh, the standalone episode on Mars Hill. So look for that coming out maybe within the next month or so. But in the meantime, I'm going to continue listening to that Christianity Today podcast. I am very interested to see where they're going to take it. And so we'll see where this thing goes with CT. But as Warren says, it's a good thing in a sense that that an evangelical organization is doing an investigation. That can only be a good thing because if nothing else, maybe some of the evangelical audiences will listen to it and that can only be a good thing. And I guess it's doing quite well. Someone said to me on Twitter the other day that it's reached like number three in the rankings. So it's explode up. So that means there's a big audience listening to this stuff. So that's a good thing. It's a step in the right direction, if nothing else. Anyway, let's get back on into the chat with Dr. Warren Throckmorton as we look into the cult psychology of Mark Driscoll as a cult leader. Does he fit that profile? And then we're also going to analyze Mars Hill. And as I said before, his current church in Scottsdale, Arizona, what's happening there? Some very disturbing reports are coming out. So let's get on back into this conversation about the legacy of the Mars Hill, Seattle, Mark Driscoll's toxic cult of personality. I was reading an article by Rachel Bernstein of the Indoctrination Podcast, and she's also a therapist. She deals with a lot of religious trauma syndrome, and she wrote this article about the a cult leader profile, and what she said was that, I mean, obviously, there's different cult leader profiles. One thing they all share in common, of course, is that most cult leaders are narcissists of some degree, and they have a massive ego, but she said one cult leader is the kind of person, they don't necessarily start out you know, envisioning, you know, I want to make, I want to have a cult here or a giant cult of personality. But as, as they grow and get more strokes and their ego builds, they, they become more and more about them being in the limelight, whatever that might be. That seems to fit the kind of trajectory of Mars Hill, I think, wasn't it? Where, like you just described, Mark didn't start out to be the, uh, the only guy preaching, but as time went on, it was like, no, it's all about me. I think he said at some point, yeah, this is Mars Hill. This is me up on stage with a Bible. That's what it's going to be. And that's that's how it has to be. It was like a monument to his ego, it seems like. Well, that's what the the Christianity Today podcast is really mm-hmm. um, developing, is this idea that he didn't start out with a plan. And that's very consistent with what I found in 2014 when I interviewed hundreds of mm former members and attenders, people who were close to the beginning of the church. I interviewed uh, Leif Moy, who was one of the co-founders. Some of the other people were there. Ron Wheeler, uh, one of Driscoll's early colleagues. And it's all consistent that at the beginning, it was, uh, let's just get something going. Let's get something Mm -hmm. different. Let's do a Bible study, wasn't it? In his his house, I think. It was, uh, but even even more than that, it was, yes, a Bible study, but if getting something going in Seattle where we can start a, a church of some kind required a, something else besides a Bible study, we would do that. And mm-hmm. they, you know, did the, the concert venue. I heard a lot about that in my interviewing that, I mean, they had bands in that had nothing to do with religion and it was just to attract a crowd. They wanted yeah, to attract people draw. in. And so some of the early, quote, evangelism was just getting kids around and getting people around attracted to the music. They didn't like the music necessarily, didn't care about the music, but it was a way to reach some people in Seattle. Mm-hmm. You know, in the typical evangelical mindset, you're trying to spread the gospel. You're trying to get mm-hmm. the message out. You're trying to get people to accept Jesus uh, as a as savior. And that's what they were trying to do. As time went on and there was success in what they were doing, people wanted to know, how are you doing that? Mm-hmm. You know, how's that working? Seattle's a tough uh, place. Yes, uh, it is. I grew you know, up what's, there. <laughs> what's, the, what's the method, you know? And yeah. that's where I think, you know, it started to become hey, we're doing something that could maybe be marketed or could be could be transferred. And maybe we're part of why this is working. Mm. And uh, I think that over time, 
it became maybe more about the messenger and the method than about the message mm -hmm. and, you know, just the result. Now, they always used the result as an excuse for whatever it was that they did. If it was questionable or ethically bad or yeah, people dubious. got hurt. Well, hey, look, we're baptizing people. But right. uh, look at the numbers. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and that's as old as revival meetings. I mean, mm -hmm. that's, you know, that goes back to numbers, nickels and noise uh, <laughs> yeah. in the, uh, you know, among the Southern preachers, Southern evangelists. But uh, he used the same justification for whatever it was he either wanted to do or did wrong. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right on the music scene, too, because I've, I've read about their it was like an all ages concert venue that somehow they were, they were able to get the lease for it because they were a nonprofit organization. Whereas if a, a private company had come in, it would have been too expensive. So they were able to kind of sneak in the back door. And there's an interesting side note to this too. There's a backstory because I went to church when I was back in the evangelical days at Calvary fellowship in Seattle. Now that church comes up in the Mars Hill story because it was in the exact same neighborhood that Mars Hill was started in, which is a neighborhood called Wallingford, which is up near the University of Washington. That's where Calvary Fellowship was located. One thing about Calvary is that we had a lot of musicians at that church. I mean, I was in a Christian metal band for years. There were loads of like grunge bands, alternative bands, yeah. all sorts of things. That church moved out in, I think, 1997. The city closed down because we used to meet in a high school and the city wanted this property back, so the church had to move. That was right around the time that Mars Hill was starting up, and they were able to attract, I think, a lot of the musicians from Calvary, and they went on to form you know, bands that were part of that Tooth & Nail Records label, as well as part of the worship teams that played at Mars Hill. You know, So mm -hmm. a lot of that scene, I mean, that was right in that sort of university district area, real liberal area, real um, eclectic area, You know, a lot of musicians, artists free thinkers, you know, that sort of thing. So sure, right. he was looking for that demographic, but I'm not sure, as you say, that he really was into it himself because he was a model of like, Oh, well, this guy's emerging church, but his theology was straight kind of fundamentalist reformed. Wasn't it very down the line? I don't know when that shifted or if it did, I know he eventually became part of what has been called young, restless and reformed. Mm -hmm with the emphasis on reformed. Yeah. Uh, so uh, the emerging part, to whatever degree that was theological, didn't last long. Uh, yeah, uh, if it ever yeah. was part of it, which I don't think it was because a friend of mine that I went to seminary with, I'd never heard of Mars Hill back in 97, 98, 99. And he said, you got to go up there and check this church out. This is really wild. It's, a, it's an emerging church. So we, we did, we took a weekend, we went up to Seattle I was down in Portland actually go, going to that same seminary that Mark Driscoll went to. And so we visited the church and I was all ready for some wild, wild way out, you know, theology, but it wasn't because I looked at their website when I got back and I thought this is just straight boilerplate conservative evangelical sort of Calvinist theology. I didn't see anything that was like, you know, in the Brian McLaren or any of that sort of camp at all yeah. back in those days. Yeah. Okay which I thought was really interesting because what I thought was when I visited Marcel, that was about probably 2000 or 1999. They were moved. They had moved into the big main building down in the Ballard area. And what struck me was I thought, man, this is just Calvary fellowship 2.0. This is everything that we used to do right up the street, probably five minutes from where our church used to meet. It's just, they're, they're a bit cooler and hipper and, but it's the same exact model of church growth that we employed in Calvary was a big church. It had probably seven, 8,000 people. So it was not a small church. It was a big, big church, you know? So I thought they'd just kind of taken <laughs> probably a lot of the people that used to go to Calvary and lived in that neighborhood and just didn't want to move to the new location and just jumped over to Mars Hill. Hmm. That's a good point. Hmm. Yeah. Same demographics, but it seems like, like you said, it all starts to unravel for Driscoll with that Janet Mefford interview, wasn't it? But then the William Wallace stuff started coming out. How much did you get into that? Because that was a whole nother bizarre piece that came out of this story. Well, the unraveling was, was of course, uh, you know, a slow unravel after 2007, you mm -hmm. know, through 2014. But I published the uh, comments. Uh, somebody had sent them to me uh, where he said, uh, as William Wallace, uh, we are a pussified nation. Mm -hmm. 
and uh, among other things. <laughs> oh yeah, so many other a lot of rants. Things. Uh, that's all on the you know on my blog. Sure. Uh, if anybody wants to look that up, but uh, he um, he he just you know faked this identity yeah. and uh, got on the church's chat room and chat board and just went nuts. It really uh, did. Complaining about uh, complaining about gays, complaining about feminine men, complaining about uh, women who wanted to be equal, <laughs> complaining yeah. about. You know anything? Uh, he sounded like Archie Bunker, <laughs> yeah. and um, and then, but he didn't want to take responsibility for it, so he made up this name William Wallace, mm -hmm. uh, the third, I think, or so, I don't know if it was second or third, but uh, eventually was outed and or well, he outed himself, it, didn't he? Because it was in his himself, book. In he his put book, he admitted yeah. it in his Reformation Rev book, which came out in two thousand six or seven. I don't remember. But this, the, the blog or the uh, forum posts were like around about the year 2000, I think. So it was several years later that he finally outed himself as William Wallace, the second or third, whichever it was. And the, but those were taken down and, you know, they, all that had been taken down. I, I think it was just, you know, when they were republished, it was like, oh, wow, Whoa. really? You know, this did, is crazy. did you really say that stuff? He said and, it. He said uh, the quiet part out loud, I guess. He did. And so that that raised it all again, and you know brought the whole whole thing again, and, and really raised the issues that were taken up by Mike Cosper in the podcast mm -hmm. about Mars Hill and the way that women were regarded in in that ministry in that church, and um, how that women were to be subservient, and even though he may have apologized for the words that he used and so forth, nothing really changed as far as the way women were regarded mm -hmm. and the roles that they were expected to have. They were all supposed to, you know, be married and have lots of kids and yeah, submit to their husbands and all that. Yeah. Their husband. And even, well, just the, the whole, the whole thing was that there are these very rigid roles that the men play and women play. Mm -hmm. And of course uh, we could, boy, we could really have a whole podcast, episode on this but oh yeah you know men are also bound by these things because it's like men can't be soft or cry or you know men are are bound by these roles too it's just that the advantage that men have is that they get to be the boss of everything and that's hmm. the that's the role they have and women you know they're they're constricted too they they can only do so many things but they don't ever get to be the boss of anything except maybe the kids right and uh and so that's the Mars Hill legacy, if you will, or one of the legacies of Mars Hill, the Christianity Today podcast uh, goes over. And so even though, you know, he can apologize for the, and did in 2014 for the actual words he used, it was, it, it really didn't change the way that women felt that their role was continued to be through right to the, to the end. Mm -hmm. of the church and absolutely that's one of the i know a lot of the the, the uh, elders who have come away from mars hill and who feel really damaged and that they did damage at mars hill that's one of the things that they talk to me a lot about is that they feel really bad about maintaining those mm -hmm. helping to promote that promote those roles yeah well, and even I remember one of the elders, I can't remember whose name it was, but he was saying on the Christianity Today podcast at the time when the William Wallace stuff was was being written, bound around 2000, and then when they found out it was Driscoll who was writing it, they were like, oh, well, you know, just kind of shrugged their shoulders and wow, you know, now they're looking back on it and saying, what in the world? Like you were talking about the conditioning that, that I mean, you read it now. I was reading on Rachel Held Evans' blog there's some archive stuff on there and she has a couple of posts about where she cites those, some of the rants that Driscoll said, you know, and, and like you said, there's an equal, equal side to it. The, the toxic masculinity, mm -hmm. the sort of macho Christianity, the tough guy. But yet he, I remember one of his quotes, he said, talking to men, he said, you want to be a rebel, a rebel in our society, get a job, mow your lawn and take care of your family and shut up. <laughs> you know? So even with the, the men, I mean, it's just a crazy statement, isn't it? 
get a job, mow your lawn and shut up. I mean, that's, that's what a man's supposed to do. Apparently do your family thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's all very simple, right? I mean, mm. that's, that's I guess the, so. <laughs> uh, that's the world according to Mars Hill is, uh, you know, you do your thing, you do your thing and everything's great. And, uh, when life of course, isn't that way and isn't that simple, then you just pretend that it is. And uh, don't so. talk about it when it's not shovel it under the carpet. So this is the interesting part. Okay, so Mark Driscoll was supposed to be restored. When the, the big thing that finally, I guess, broke it wide open, there was the plagiarism interview with Janet Mefford, then all this stuff's coming out. Then the New York Times bestseller list, that mm-hmm. was another big kind of scandal, wasn't it, where it was yes. discovered that they had used a huge amount of money to get his book on marriage to the top of the New York Times bestseller list. And that was kind of the mm-hmm. straw that broke the camel's back, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. That's right. Yes. Um, it, it was uh, a deception, of course, because mm-hmm. uh, it, it was never disclosed to anybody that that book was on the bestseller list because the, this uh, group called Result Source, they were a consulting group, and they had agreed with the church. They were paid by the church to purchase 11,000 copies of the book, all, you know, as if individuals had bought it at retail to drive up the rankings and everything yeah the church was entitled to purchase that many copies at a discount Mm -hmm. and then just you know give them away or sell them at a discount but that wouldn't have helped the bestseller list they had to buy them uh at retail right posing as uh, individual buyers right they had like a thousand different uh accounts result source did Amazing. With fake uh, credit cards, fake gift cards, and so forth. Make it look like it was, uh, you know, everybody wanted the book. And uh, mm-hmm. they do that for other people. Driscoll's sure. not alone in that. But they use church money to do it. And uh, Driscoll acts surprised when he got on, you know, the he tweeted out some yeah. surprise tweet. I'm like, oh, shocked. We're on, <laughs> yeah, we're on the list. Oh, I see. Right. Yeah. We made so, the best bestseller list. Wow. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. How'd that happen? So, um <laughs> Ah. You know, when it came out and I published the contract that the church signed with Result Source, it oh. showed just how kind of yeah, gross all that was and unseemly it was. And he, uh, he you know, he said, oh, I'm sorry, you know, I'll take the best selling author off all my books and tried mm-hmm. to make a pretense of, of trying to correct it. But that really did change things in the minds of people people stopped going to church and then they ran into financial trouble because the giving went way down Mm -hmm. Uh, and uh, as that happened they were they were pretty highly leveraged they had a lot of properties they owed money on them and it just became unsustainable as time went on they had to lay off staff more revelations came out toward the end we're actually in the month of august and seven years ago the month of august was horrendous from Mars Hill, Acts 29 Church Planting Network kicked Driscoll out of the network that he co-founded. Uh, they kicked the church out of the Acts 29 Network. It was very public. Uh, I published that. Uh, there were uh, a number of other things that the elders did. They came forward with charges against Driscoll that needed to be investigated. That was former elders and existing elders. Uh, also suggested that Driscoll take some time off. So the month of August was really the turning point when uh, it all of what had been brewing under the surface just came to the, the surface. And then oh, it took, bubbled up. All the chickens came and, home to roost in August. Then. That's right. And then, uh, you know, September, October, November, he took time off. The investigation took forward. And then eventually uh, the elders who investigated the charges against him came back and said, uh, you know, you're disqualified from ministry. We'd like you to go through a restoration process and be requalified. He said, uh, basically, no, I'm, I quit. Yeah, and that's, that's where it ended. He resigned. Yeah. So he, as far as I could tell the story, was rather than go through a process of accountability and maybe get some therapy counseling. Because one of the things we didn't talk about was, as you kind of alluded to, there was a long 
history of him being a very abusive, bullying type of personality. I guess he would shout at people in staff meetings and of course he would fire people and really was intimidating and quite a, a you know, sort of a bullying, threatening figure. So that was another one. It must've been one of the things they were investigating surely, wasn't it? It was. Um, here's, I mean, one illustration uh, I can give and I could give, I mean, there were pages yeah, and pages dozens. of these illustrations, but in one meeting, again, let me, let me highlight something here. This is not Mark Driscoll in his closet, you know, hammering a nail and hits his thumb and he, he says, yeah. you know, uh, the S word. That's not, that's not what this is. This is in public meetings and staff meetings where there are, you know, 10, 15, 20 people. And, you know, this is like at your job. Yeah, and people worked he, at the church. They, and, and so he's, he's leading a meeting. All right. So in one of these meetings, there's a, a pastor who, who doesn't swear. He just believes it's wrong to swear. Mm -hmm. And so Driscoll thinks that's funny. And so he, he says, I, I want you to say, uh, I think it was the F word. Yeah, I need you to swear in this meeting. Right. He's baiting this guy. Baiting this guy to, to do something <laughs> he thinks is sinful. And wow. so finally they get him to do it. And, and uh, everybody laughs and care. And, you know, this guy is, he's mortified. Yeah, mortified. And so this is harassment. I mean, this is just, you know, yeah, that's, if I, straight that's abusive. why I'm, yeah. That's why I want to do this in my industrial organizational class, mm. because I want people and my students to understand that harassment and and uh, on the job bullying takes place in churches, sure. not just not just in industry. <laughs> yeah, and you know, this is a good example of it. And so there's just page after page of this stuff that the elders investigated and found that, you know, he, there's good reason to believe he did it. But yeah, you know, you got to think, as you said before, what do you mean investigated? Because these people surely were in meetings for years with, and they saw the real Driscoll. That's right. You know, so what do you mean investigate? <laughs> you know, all you got to do is think back to however many years of meetings where you were berated and belittled and bullied by Driscoll to think yep. this, this is a head pastor of a very, very large church surely this guy is not qualified to be in leadership of a church for sure. Well, that's, that's right. And some of them, not all of them were in every meeting. And so there, there was a need to sure, yeah. confirm, straight, you know, yeah. various stories and, and so forth. But uh, you're right. They, they, uh, they were very believable stories because many of them had experienced similar things. So this is the real concern is that I guess it's about what, two years later, he starts this church in Scottsdale, Arizona, Trinity Church, as you mentioned before. And there's this huge list of senior pastors and Christian evangelical leaders that are backing him. And now he's got this thing. I don't know how big it is. There seems to be conflicting stories. When it first started out, it wasn't very big. I heard that it's around 2,000 people. But he's got a, an iron grip. Uh, over this Trinity Church, because the story that you reported on was one that Julie Royce talked about, where it was like a family that came to the church and were involved in music ministry. And then I guess this guy's son was dating Driscoll's daughter and let it slip that they'd kissed at one point, And that just caused a firestorm. They got booted out of the church. They got shunned. They were investigated by the police. I mean, it was just this huge over-the-top reaction to a, just a teenage romance, I guess, is what it sounded like. Right, yeah, the uh, the family was surveilled by yeah, uh, private investigators and various security details of the church, and yeah, uh, it sounds like uh, Scientology's fair gaming type stuff, doesn't it? It does. That's what uh, they there, do. That's there are a number of parallels to stories that people who've been in Scientology tell, and I, I, uh, I mean, so. Again, you think, well, this is worse. Well, you know, there, things like that happened at Mars Hill, too. They just, all those stories, there's still stories that haven't come out mm. uh, about Mars Hill. But it, it's, it's a similar kind of dynamic. If you cross uh, the leaders, they've crossed the Driscoll family, then uh, you're definitely on the outs. Yeah, you're persona non grata. And as they say, the ch you may leave the church, but the church doesn't leave you. 
you could be harassed and followed and investigated and even have the local police come out, you know, so it's a crazy, but that's the thing is, okay, looking at it now sort of objectively, what type of cultic parallels would we draw? We've said there's the shunning piece, the sort of egomaniac, the narcissistic cult leader. Uh, what other cult parallels could you think of that maybe re- where it does resemble sort of this cult psychology? I think it's, um, without getting um, too stuck on, on the term cult, I, I think yeah. I would probably focus on, on control mm. and the idea of uh, control of, of one's thoughts, control of one's information, control of behavior. Right. So the bite uh, model. The, yeah, the bite model, I think is a really good one. Mm-hmm. Um, that's where I, that's how I try to an, analyze this sort of thing. And I, I look at what's going on there and I see a lot of efforts to control who people are friends with. Uh, that's really what's stood out to me. And the, the thing that I think is the most heartbreaking is the family manipulations, mm-hmm. uh, controlling who can you know if you can see grandchildren or not based upon whether you know you favor the Driscolls and so they have a couple of families that have uh, married into the Driscoll family you know a couple kids married Driscoll kids and those in-laws have been estranged from from their kids they can't see their kids or uh, you know they don't have kids yet they don't have grandchildren yet but if they did they wouldn't they would be isolated from them. And then there's a staff member who is has been instructed not to allow the grandchildren to see their grandparents. And, uh, you know, these kinds of efforts to control, that's what I focus more right. on. And, and so you can't really say, well, it's, you know, this kind of cult or that kind of cult. But what you can do is take a look at who is making the decisions for individuals? Mm-hmm. And if you make, quote, the wrong decision or go against the leadership, what consequences are there? Mm-hmm. And if there are consequences for making a free choice, then you really have to look at whether or not you should be in that group. Right. Do I want to be a part of this thing? This might not be a good idea. Well, I know you have to go. We've been talking for nearly an hour. I was just thinking too that you've got a lot of information on your blog. As you've alluded to, you've written, I don't know, hundreds, I don't know how many, maybe thousands of articles over the years. Where can people find your blog if they wanted to research more information on Mark Driscoll and the Mars Hill saga? The address is wthrockmorton.com. And right. I'm also on Twitter, pretty active on Twitter, wthrockmorton. Uh, is my handle there. Uh, so W. Throckmorton, T-H-R-O-C-K-M-O-R-T-O-N.com uh, and uh, on, the, on the web. It's a very good resource. I know I've used it many, many times just researching, obviously, the David Barton stuff and now the Mars Hill, Mark Driscoll saga. I may do a standalone episode because I've got a backstory, kind of some of the things I alluded to going to Calvary Fellowship and Mark Driscoll's past and I nearly crossed several times. And, you know, there's some interesting parallels there. I mean, I'm not a, I don't, I don't pastor a mega church at all, for sure. I never did, but yeah, there's some interesting stuff going on. But listen, Dr. Warren Trockmorton, thank you so much for your work, your investigative journalism, helping to shine a light on people like Mark Driscoll, David Barton, and so many others. Thank you. Appreciate you saying that.